This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. Good evening and welcome. I am happy to be here on behalf of Haymarket Books to be in conversation with Mark Lamont Hill and Mitchell Plitnik, co-authors of this critical new text, Except for Palestine, The Limits of Progressive Politics. And so um, before I give you the bios for these gentlemen and dig into um you know, dive into questions, I should say. Let me start by by sharing my own stories of of interacting with this this concept of progressive except for Palestine, what's otherwise known as PEP. Um, in many, many encounters, but one of the most vivid ones was in around 2001, when I was working with a group of remarkable women who are were trailblazing and continue to trailblaze in the field of critical feminism and anti-racism, Nadine Neber, Imanda Su'i, Lina Baroudi, and Yumna Shlele, um, who I supported. I was a researcher in supporting the effort to draft a paper entitled The Forgotten-ism, an Arab-American woman's perspective on Zionism, racism, and sexism. That paper was to be presented in Durban, South Africa, during the 2001 Durban Review Conference, which was basically a review of the decade against racism um, that, you know, the first convening of it happens in Ghana in 1978. And so it's at this time in 2001, it's in the beginning, in the aftermath of what's known as the Second Palestinian Intifada, the, it's obvious that the peace process has collapsed. Um, Yasser Arafat is about to be um, held hostage in his own presidential compound. The Israeli military has now shifted from an occupation framework and law enforcement to direct military force against Palestinians who are in protest. And in this context, what crystallizes is that this isn't about peacemaking, right? This is actually about um, dismantling a racially um, informed, right, if not racist, system that's predicated and based on an imbalance of power between a state, a nu- Israel, a nuclear power, the 11th most significant military in the world, and a stateless people, the Palestinians. And so from this, crystallizes a framework, or or I should say, again, uh, it's a return, an analytical return to understanding that Israel is, is actually overseeing a racist regime. And as people are going to Durban, South Africa, they're intent on holding up the banner that Israel is an apartheid state. Right. This causes all. So and and it's and it's global grassroots coalitions that are doing it. There's no state that's actually leading this effort, unlike the earlier effort um, in 1975, when that was, you know, in in agreement amongst third world countries and the non-aligned movement. But this causes such an uproar. Right. That Israel says this is this is anti-Semitic. We're pulling out of the entire Durban review. The United States is is indignant. 
and believes that not only is it anti-Semitic, but it's threatened to pull out as well. And what Naomi Klein later shows us um, in an excellent Harper's essays on this topic is that the United States was using Israel to protect itself because it was going to be held um, to account for reparations for um, people of African descent in the United States. And so they're they're withdrawing to protect themselves, but they're using the, you know, the critique of Israel as an apartheid state as the shield and the entry point. So here we see in this moment something that is actually endemic um, to working on Palestine within progressive spaces. You can imagine the amount of consternation that this causes and the split that this causes even within the progressive ranks at Durban who agreed with the analysis but were very bitter that all of their efforts to hold racism um, to account globally were about to be undermined because of the insistence that Israel was racist too. Right? And so it became the back door to unravel these progressive efforts. And even though everyone can see it for what it is, it's it 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 creates this split. Now that that is what I'm describing as endemic. That was also the case, and I was just telling um my my friends here that I'm a, I'm working on a piece that's revisiting this history when it happened in 1975. The same thing happened during um, the deliberations of the decade for action, that the threat to undermine the entire decade for any mention of Zionism would then dismantle the entire project. And we also see the contemporary echoes. Obviously, we saw it clearly during the Women's March, when the inclusion of a critique of Zionism from you know a a radical feminist critique of Zionism becomes a thread to unravel the Women's March. It becomes a personal attack against Linda uh, Sarsour and a vicious personal attack against Rasmiya Odeh when she joins um, in, in basically calling for a national strike uh, amongst women. Uh, we see it again as it targets individuals who are doing this work, like when and. Dr. Angela Davis, um, a daughter of Birmingham, an icon of human rights and intersectional um, advocacy, right, is going to be awarded the Shuttlesworth Human Rights Award in Birmingham. But that award gets rescinded because of her stance on Palestine. We see it happen to Dr. Hill, who was also punished in response to his speech at the United Nations and then fired, summarily fired uh, as a CNN commentator in response in his punishment. We're seeing it right now play out with Dr. Cornell West in his battle for tenure at Harvard uh, because of his position on Palestine, which is even, I think, much less radical than the ones that, you know, have, have been at issue that have taken, you know, that have actually taken a direct target at um, Zionism or taken issue with Zionism. And of course, I can't say all this without saying that the greatest, right, that the, that the folks who have endured this the most have been Palestinians themselves. As we've seen in the case of, of uh, Professor Stephen Salaita, as we've seen in the case of Professor Joseph Massad or Professor Nadia Abul Hajj, that the greatest punishment is, is reserved for Palestinians. And, and oftentimes it, it happens in ways that are much more consequential, as was the case with the Los Angeles 8, right, that mm -hmm. spanned, a, it was a 20-year witch hunt that threatened to rescind uh, Palestinians of their American citizenship because of their advocacy for Palestine, as well as in, in the case of the Holy Land Foundation, where their support of Palestine has been criminalized as somehow supporting terrorists. I mean, this, is, this isn't just about 
the limits of progressive politics, what's at issue is that there is an accusation and the risk of bearing an accusation by taking a stance on the question of Palestine and a stance with Palestinian human rights. So I want to ask our co-authors to tell us about that accusation. Let me briefly introduce them. Here's their beautiful new book. You too can read their bio in the back cover and see their fancy picture. Uh, Mark Lamont Hill is an award-winning journalist and Steve Charles Professor of Media, Cities, and Solutions at Temple University. He is the author of multiple books, including the New York Times bestselling Nobody. He lives in Philadelphia. Mitchell Plitnick, the president of Rethinking Foreign Policy, is a political analyst and a frequent writer on the Middle East and U.S. foreign policy. His past roles include vice president of the Foundation for Middle East Peace, director of the U.S. office of Beit Salem, and co-director of Jewish Voice for Peace. He lives in Maryland. Welcome, gentlemen. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So tell us. Tell us about it. You all describe, you know, in multiple vignettes uh, in, in different spaces from within Congress. I think you focus on Congress, but also in media spaces and elsewhere on what you describe as a limit amongst uh, progressives. And yet here I'm saying I think it's also an accusation. Um, and in particular, you're focusing on the brand of this limit in the United States. So can you tell us what is this limit? How, if you were to erect a model of, of how this limit in the barrier to touching the question of Palestine gets constructed, how would you describe it to somebody who's down and entering grassroots movement and, and, and doesn't think a thing of it? For them, Palestine is just part of the big picture. And you want to tell them, well, there's this thing. How then would you answer that for them? That's a that's a wonderful, challenging. That question is so interesting and challenging. I want to. I almost want to just pass it to Mitchell and, and hi. <laughs> but, but um, I, I think that uh, it, it's a great question because I, I think that part of what we attempt to do in the book and part of what we've, how we came. Let me back up. Actually, part of how we um, came to this book and came to this topic for a book was that we were trying to figure out where our intervention could be. Right. We we started writing this book a few years ago before I still worked at CNN when we were writing this. When we started this book. Uh, we, we So in some ways we were trying to figure out how we could initially offer a critique of the rising tide of authoritarianism in the United States and in Israel. We were looking at uh, Donald Trump and Benjamin Netanyahu as two kind of emblematic figures of a, of a rightward shift in politics. And we were trying to think about how those two things were connected. That's where we actually began uh, our, our, our project. Um, and then things got more interesting. Uh, we talked, uh, things got interesting, more interesting in the political sphere. Things got more interesting in our personal lives. Things got more interesting in our conversations. And we said, what could be an even more interesting intervention for us to make as non-Palestinians, as non-Israelis, um, as American citizens, you know, uh, taxpayers, et cetera. And, and we said we wanted to touch on this question of, of of the PEP and what it means to be one, but we didn't want to have some kind of psychoanalysis of the PEP. You know, we didn't want to it didn't want to just be some kind of critique of those people who have these um, ostensible or apparent contradictions, morally, ethically, politically. Although that's interesting, I think that's that's in some ways well well trod territory. And we also didn't want to reify the PEP. Like we, we I, I I I was. It was really important to me and Mitchell, uh, I'm sure, um, to not hold 
um, the PEP is a legitimate political category either, right? To, to say that this is not something that's sustainable or tenable. You can't be that, right? Any more than you can be progressive except for slavery, right? It, it's, it's not per, it's a, not a permissible position to be at. So rather than, so what we decided to do is begin with the question that you're getting at, which is how do we arrive there? What are the conditions that allow for that to be? And for us, it's not a singular strategy. It's not a cabal of power. It's not a uh, it's, it's it's not a secret deal that people make. And it's not, as you point out, a conscious choice that sometimes people people um, engage. There's a way that that it's actually just the norm of American politics. And we wanted to get at some of the kind of structures, systems, logics, histories, institutional arrangements, et cetera, that get us there, that get us to a point where you can be a progressive um, a progressive member of Congress, and, and you can identify as liberal, radical, whatever, or, or literally progressive. How can you? How do you get to a space um, where you can be outraged at what's happening at the southern border, be outraged at the separation of families and children, the outraged at people being locked in cages, and say nothing about the cutting of UNRWA funds, or say nothing about what's happening in Gaza? I mean, how do you? How does that become a reconcilable or morally sustainable position for you? And and, and we want to get at that and understand that it's not a singular cause. It, it, it's it's not. It, again, part of it is just the the norm of the day. And so we sort of examine how American politics gets to a place where Democrats and Republicans actually unify on this issue. You watch a debate between uh, Trump and Hillary or Trump and uh, 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 Biden or, or, or whomever, and, and they will they'll disagree with everything from oil to offshore drilling to the environment to education sometimes to 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 pro to reproductive justice. We can go down the list and then you get to this question of Israel and Palestine and suddenly they're singing the same note have the same talking points. You know, you close your eyes. Wh- who, which one first is going to say Palestinians could have had paradise, but they chose Hamas? Who's going to say that they, they need a Gandhi? Who's going to say, I mean, it, 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 you, you can pick, right? It, it, it might be Hillary, it might be Donald. Um, and so so part of what we want to get is how we arrive at that place so that the young activist understands that as they enter this, this sphere, that Palestine is something that should be on the table with everything else, but gets exceptionalized, right? Um, and, and really, Israel gets exceptionalized. And as a consequence of that, Palestinian rights and Palestinian justice gets exceptionalized and marginalized. And so I, I think that the, the boundaries are, again, are, are just are institutional, they're cultural, they're 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 political. They're all of these things. And we want to unpack them. And we, we spent most of our time unpacking it at the policy level. But we could have just as easily written a book about how this plays out in terms of um in terms of academia, right? We could we could unpack. I mean, you got people who you got a group of professors that will write letters about cancel culture, and some of them were the very people who fought to cancel Stephen Salaita, right? I mean, it's 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 a bizarre it's a bizarre way that they can reconcile that. Anyway, I don't want to keep going, but 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 that's sort of some of the terrain. But you know, yeah. So there's also, um, I think, for me, a lot. I mean. I agree with everything Mark said, but for me, there was another dimension that that was about holding up a mirror. Um, as, as Mark said, this this there's a there's a debate. Even sometimes it's too shallow. It, it, sometimes it's you know within a very narrow framework. But there's some kind of political debate on most issues in Washington. Um, on this one, there's virtually none, and. 
the reason is not because Republicans um, and and people on the right are backing Israel. Actually, that's quite natural. I, I think the the right wing stance, the evangelical stance on on Israel, um, is based on a certain you know for for evangelicals, it's based on a certain interpretation of the Bible. For other for more secular people, it's based on uh, a, a racist view of. Uh, a racist and ethnocentric view of global politics. Um, we can, you know, it, or just, you know, U.S. interests and not caring about human rights. We can make a whole list of why it makes sense. Among Democrats, um, you would think, based on other issues, that there would at least be a pull towards Palestinian rights in the party. And it's true, lately, you know, in the, in the last few years now, we've seen some small steps. I mean, we see Rashida Tlaib get, get elected. We see Ilhan Omar get elected. We see, you know, the whole, the squad. We see Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren occasionally step out a little bit, although not nearly as much as they do on, on other issues. Um, and I thought it was really important to hold a mirror up to that and to say, how is it that you have these views on every other issue and somehow this is acceptable? And I have, you know, ha having come from uh, a very, very pro-Israel background, um, I have a certain perspective on, on why that might happen, how that might come to be. Um, and I think that that there's a way that Israel is viewed that makes it, it, it makes it exceptional. I think there's a way that Palestinians have been perceived and portrayed in this country that creates all of those things. Um, but the end result is this this sort of illusion. And I felt like what we needed, what what we the, pl the place that our contribution as Americans um, was going to be most powerful was holding a mirror up to that that illusion, that that sense of uh, unreality, that 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 view of Israel and Palestine and Israelis and Palestinians in a very almost caricaturish way, uh, a very fictionalized way, a way that that humanizes Israelis in a way we rarely see when we talk about other countries and dehumanize Palestinians in a way that is a more extreme version of what I think we see, you know, in many places um, in in Africa and Asia in particular and, and, and also Latin America, um, any place that's basically people of color. Um, it's an expression in many ways, I think, of, of white supremacy. And yet it's something that progressives, at least some segment of the progressive community, liberal to radical, um, upholds. And that isn't sustainable if we can hold that that mirror up to them and they really have to look at it in my, you know, at least I hope not. Okay, well, I'm going to play a little bit of devil's advocate, right? So, because this, you know, Mark is right. There isn't a cabal. It's not a conspiracy theory. It's not that people have just been, you know, uh, pushed into the corner out of fear. There's also a sincere belief, right, that Israel represents the cul culmination of light over darkness, that the idea of, you know, a state, a Jewish state as a way to overcome um, anti-Semitism, state-sponsored anti-Semitism in the form of Nazism, right? The idea that Jews cannot be assimilated, that there is no other answer. And so that this is a culmination. And in fact, we know from a lot of black, you know, radicals, not part of the black radical tradition, but at least, you know, black freedom fighters who were part of um, for, 
insisted on black liberation, saw Israel as a model. Mm-hmm. Of 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 a particular form of emancipation. Obviously, this begins to crumble after 1967 and wasn't in consensus before the 1967 war. But let's just hold that and play devil's advocate that there is a reason that people believe in that. And yet, what you're telling us is they shouldn't, right? On the one hand, and then second, what you're saying very clearly is that Palestine is part of a broader human rights struggle for freedom and cannot be separated from it. So can you go into that to explain to readers, you know, folks should get the book and figure it out, but for those who want to to learn more from you on why that is, how how would you explain this to them? You know, I I, I think it's an important, and and this is why we got some criticism for this, at least I did, um, for in, in the first chapter, or, or actually even in the, the introduction, we, op- we, we begin uh, a few pages in, maybe four or five pages in, by talking about this question of anti-Semitism. Um, not because we want to equate Palestinian-ness or Palestinian struggles with anti-Semitism, um, because there is a way that, you know, the very idea of engaging in, in struggles for Palestinian freedom automatically invite a conversation with Palestine about anti-Semitism, which is unfair to Palestinians. Um, and so we don't want to play into that but it was very important for me um, and Mitchell to have a conversation about the legitimacy of um, those claims that the world is not only anti-Semitic, but maybe even increasingly so. And that there's a longstanding tradition, certainly in the era of right wing Trump politics, um, although those of us on the left and black folk get d- tagged with the anti-Semitic labels, often actually it's 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 the, it's the white Evangelicals, it's 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 the Trump folk who are pro-Israel and and anti-Semites at the same time who actually stir a lot of this stuff up. Mm-hmm. But but we want to acknowledge: look, anti-Semitism is real. Anti-Semitism is something that has been going on uh, not just in current times, but in previous times and earlier times. There's a long tradition of of, of the hatred of our of, of our Jewish brothers and sisters, and so we want to acknowledge that, and we understand that. And the idea, to your point of your, your devil's advocacy, uh, of saying you know the formation of a Jewish state seems like the natural culmination of an attempt to redress that, to offer a, a, a space of, of of safety and and self determination against the backdrop of the hell of Europe, against the hell of pogroms in Russia and Poland. I, I understand that. And and the the um, the black tradition, as you point out, from Garvey to uh, just uh, du Bois. Du Bois, you know, I think about Du Bois's letter in 48, you know, mm-hmm. ethics and the question of Palestine or his newspaper article. Right. Um, they also understood, as you said, it was a model of possibility for what it meant to be a hated people. People who are hated, subject to random violence, despised. What does it mean for them to find a space of self-determination and safety? Because whenever they've been a, a minority, an ethnic minority, they've been vulnerable, right? And, and they haven't gotten support from, from other folk. I get that. But what Garvey understood, what Du Bois understood, was that forming your own nation, right? identifying rather as your own nation, right? Which is, you know, Zionism as the, the idea of, of a Jewish nation, right? Um, and finding a physical space to live out the promise of nationhood is not problematic as such. Although I would say nation, I'm skeptical of the nation state period. I don't care where it is, how it is. I'm saying the nation state as such is an act of violence, not just Israel. I'm talking about the United States. I'm talking about Germany. I'm talking about New Zealand. I'm talking about Australia. I'm talking about all of them. But, but their issue was that they, they didn't understand exactly what was happening in 1882 
up through, say, you know, that first Aliyah in 1904, right? They, th- for them, the formation of a Jewish state was was fine because they didn't understand the impact it was having on the pre-existing population of, of Palestinians who were in that land. And so I would have the same argument now that they that they, they would have then, right? Um, and this is what, as you said, post-67, the black radicals understood even more in more sophisticated fashion, just because they had more access to information, because the, the, they could see what happened after the 1967 war. Um, you know, there was, a, the, the, even King in 68 could, you know, was, was saying, wait a minute, before I go back to the quote unquote Holy Land, I'm using quotes because that's what he wrote in the letter. Um, I need to, you know, I need to think about what's happening here. I, I'm, I'm skeptical of what's going on here. I'm no longer willing to go full force on this. And I don't think they're ever going to give East Jerusalem back is what he said in particular. And so he was beginning to understand um, this as a political project that was more complicated and nuanced. The issue, take take my skepticism of states off the table for a minute. The, the issue was not the formation of a Jewish state. The question was, how can we create a space of, of coexistence where, to quote uh, a great scholar, Nora Adekat, one relinquishes themselves of the desire to rule? That, that, that's the question. That, that, so, so no, uh, uh, of course I understand why, why, why there's a desire for a Jewish state. Um, of course I understand why the desire for safety, self-determination, peace, and dignity. Jewish people all around the world deserve that, just like everyone deserves that. The question is, how can we create that model that doesn't come at the expense of others? And and what we try to get at in this book, in that first chapter around this question of right to exist, is how can we look at the impact? Forget about the philosophical conversations we can have about Zionism, but the impact of political Zionism, which has been the primary and most dominant iteration of Zionism. How can we look at the impact of that on Palestinian people and and, and, and critique that in a way that doesn't dismiss the legitimacy of Jewish self-determination, but says, how can this play out in a way that actually provides safety, dignity, and self-determination for everybody? And, and, And to date, the current model does not work for everybody. Yeah, it um, I think I, I, I think I you know as as a, as a Jew I look at it as and someone who has actually spent a uh, great many years studying the history of Zionism. Um, Zionism set out to create a modern nation out of the Jewish people, um, and and one of the things that happens when you create a modern nation is that history goes in two directions. Right. You move on into the future. And as you move on to the, into the future and the nation coalesces, the collective memory turns uh, that people, that group of people's history um, it, and makes it longer and longer. It goes back farther and farther. That's part of creating a nation. And so despite that, um, you know, Zionism was around for you know, a good 75 years before um before the state of israel and before it became a majority position among jews and i think that's that's kind of a key thing and you know it's certainly open to debate whether it would have ever become a majority position among jews if not for the holocaust and the holocaust i think is something that we need to look at really really carefully why then did so many turn to the idea of a jewish state because i'm with mark i'm not a big fan of the nation state um and i don't necessarily think in my my individual opinion that a jewish state was the right answer to generations of jewish suffering that said um the decision to become to 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 create a sort of national existence is a jewish decision as it as it is for any other group of people any other nation um the the boundaries of that is where it affects someone else 
right? So we can have a question, and I think that that Jews can debate, do we want to exist as a nation in the modern sense? Um, and that is up to us. That ends where other, you know, another people's rights begin. And we we can question whether or not, um, you know, we can continue to question whether or not that existence is was necessarily the best choice, but it was a choice. It was the choice that that people made. Had Palestine been an unpopulated island, um, as myth had it, that it was, you know, a land without a people for people without a land, had that been true? I mean, what's the problem, right? The issue is not, um, you know, colonizing empty land. The issue is colonizing land that has people on it and and what that does to their collective rights. So um, I think Zionism did in many respects. I mean, I think Zionism was always kind of conscious of being a sort of European construct and a construct that... I mean, there's no there's no question. If you look back at the at the discussions among early Zionist thinkers in the 19th century and even the early 20th century, the colonialism there is clear, um, it, it, and it's embraced, and it's it's and it's normal. You know, frankly, that was the view of much of liberal Europe at the time. So it it was certainly not out of step uh, with anything. You know, from from the right to you know land thousands of miles away to the whole white man's burden concept. Um, it was all it was all there. Um, so, and I don't have you know I don't necessarily see that as being all that different from a lot of nationalism at that time. The problem is that. Jews actually resisted it, and it didn't become um, a a majority position until after World War II, and by which time we had things like international laws and international more. I think, frankly, more important international norms. People, we were already starting to see the world decolonizing. So, um, so Israel was was late to the game, as it were, and I think. That turned into turned Israel into a state that was saying, on the one hand, you know, look at our our long, long history of need. Look at our long, long history of persecution. Don't we need something? And you know, I think that's a fair thing to say. Yes, um, I think we did. I think again, I don't know that that was the right answer, but. We certainly needed some kind of answer. Um, as I've pointed out many times, the trauma of the Holocaust is not only that six million Jews died. Um, it, it's not only that they were killed and that many others were tortured and everyone who went through that was horribly, horribly traumatized. Um, the the collective the collective effect was that Jews had a long history of that kind of persecution. The it, although the magnitude was certainly different. The other big difference was before that incident, before the Holocaust, we could always go somewhere else. All of a sudden, in World War II, everyone was closing their doors. No one would take Jews in, despite the fact that most of the able-bodied men were off to war. Right. Um, the United States closed its doors, sent people back. You know, all the all those so-called liberal promise was broken when it came to Jews fleeing that persecution. So, you know, that's a collective trauma that that people really identify with. In some ways, it's guilt, but in other ways, it's also you know, hey, that was a really that was a really bad thing to do. So, um, I think 
that all brings us to this place of sympathy. Um, and I think that's where most people have started up until now. I think only in recent years do you really have people coming into this with a consciousness of the crimes Israel has committed and the amount of dispossession that its creation, not only its creation, but its sustenance and its growth have have necessitated. It could not have been created uh, in the way it was without dispossessing the Palestinian people. It could not have grown as it has um, economically, politically, and certainly militarily without um, further dispossessing the Palestinian people, occupying the Palestinian people, denying the Palestinian people their rights. And despite the many, many, many centuries and more recent horrors of Jewish suffering, that doesn't make that okay. It doesn't make that acceptable. And it shouldn't, you know, but I do think it does change the question of Israel for a lot of people. It makes it much more complicated because, you know, it's it's the quote unquote victims becoming the victimizers. And you can only really see that if you understand that they have become the victimizers. And I think we're still at the stage where a lot of people need to really understand that Israel, you know, in many cases, um, you know, there's many Israelis who I, I know many who I love dearly and are wonderful, wonderful people and fight against this. Um, but in the end, Israel as a collective uh, has become a victimizer. And that is very hard for people to accept. Yeah, I appreciate your forthcomingness to have this discussion. I think that these are part that's part of the terrain where these things become landmines and it's a lack of the ability to discuss it because of the sensitivities associated with it that we even lack the tools and the language to be able to have what should otherwise be an obvious explicit conversation. I just want to add a couple of things to uh, what y'all said, especially, you know, for folks thinking about this as, as Mitchell is raising for us, there is a perennial Jewish question, right? And there have been many responses to that question from assimilation to, you know, um, labor struggle, including to various forms of Zionism, right? Mm -hmm. it, there isn't just one Zionism. To condemn all of it, I think, is what, you know, makes some people also sensitive because there's a cultural Zionism that's in question that people do hold on to and actually were referring to and a split between Zionist thinkers and political Zionism, which we can refer to as Herzlian Zionism, that culminates in the establishment of the state of Israel and which is predicated on the removal of Palestinians and not merely a denial that there were a population there, but the denial that those that that population constituted a political entity, a political community with the right um, to self-determination in line, in line with the colonial denial of people's sovereignty beginning in the 15th century and the conquistadores, you know, um, exploration and, and conquest of the Americas, right? That this this is in line with the theory of uh, an empty land, terra nullis. It wasn't that there was actually empty, but that the people on it weren't, for racist reasons and, you know, international law reasons, um, could not be sovereign, could not be sovereign. But on the question of then, then what does Herzlian Zionism, in addition to, you know, exuding and meeting out this violence, what does it mean for, you know, when when people want to tell us, but um, Jews have a right to self-determination on that land. You know, here I just want to go back and, you know, in addition to your general aversion to to nationalisms is also, you know, to hold on to this idea that that this right isn't necessarily, you know, it's sometimes being equated with a biblical right 
that is also a stand-in with somehow, you know, in an indigeneity. Um, and the one thing I want to point out here is something that David Ben-Gurion, the, you know, two-time prime minister and founder, uh, two-time prime minister of Israel and and one of its, you know, leading, um, you know, politicians and, and military per, per persons says very clearly, Israel is part of the Middle East in geography only, right? right? So to claim a belonging and an indigeneity to a place that you reject, right? It's the creation of Israel to earn acceptance somewhere else and primarily in Europe that rejected it is, is the thing that we, we can get to. And then I'll just end on that of, we should definitely embrace the Holocaust as you do as trauma. And one of the things that, you know, Professor Shireen Sayali um, teaches us and teaches her students is to do that with radical empathy so that the Holocaust and the Palestinian Nakba and the removal of Palestinians, which is an ongoing process, not, you know, a particular event, um, are not in antagonism, you know, are not in, in, in controversy with one another. But actually, we have to hold those two things together. The Holocaust and the Nakba become traumas that we hold together, not distinct and mutually exclusive. And so that's kind of the radical work that we would need to do to overcome the limits amongst progressive politics on this question. So with that, I want to, um, Mitchell, I want to actually ask you this question because I've known you for a long, long time. <laughs> I've met you in different iterations of your political and intellectual journey. I mean, it's been it's 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 been wonderful, right, to grow with you along the way in our respective um, fields. And when I can say, I think, and it's okay for me to say that you two were once a pep, a progressive, except for Palestine. And I think it's really instructive for our audience to to know about you know that pathway for you. You know, it's both it's both a big leap, right? It's both that big leap of understanding that Israel is not unassailable, and then incremental leaps. Mm -hmm. After that, to, to then go, well, even the limits of the two-state solution um, demonstrate themselves. Can you walk us through some of your journey? Sure. I mean, uh, I'm going to try and keep this brief because I'm old now and uh, there would be too much of that. But um, I mean, I was I, I was born into an Orthodox Jewish family um, in a very, very pro-Israel environment. Um, I, I like to illustrate that by pointing out to people that when I was 11 uh, on, on Shabbat uh, at a friend's house, I met Mayor Kahana. Um, so that I wouldn't say that is necessarily entirely typical of the environment, but that was certainly a, a, a significant part of the environment I was in. Um, I, I, there's a part of the Israel narrative that I think is a is a landmine for the pro-Israel side, um, because it's certainly in my case, um, I was by the time I was entering my teens, I hadn't really questioned it except to the extent that the story I was hearing was that every single time Israel was always innocent, Israel was always so good, it, it was always in, in the right, it never made, it basically never made a mistake. Um, and if it did, well, it was really accidental, it didn't mean, and Palestinians, well, actually, you know, at that time, we're talking about the late 70s and early 80s, so it was not the Palestinians. Palestinians was, were not generally referred to. Um, it was the Arabs. Um, so the Arabs were always evil and treacherous and like, and 
you know, I, I, I was, you know, it didn't take long before I was like, that just doesn't make sense. Nobody's ever that much in the right. Um, and that sort of started me on a journey. And actually, the first place I went was to um, to study Israeli history and Israeli, you know, when Israelis were writing history, it wasn't actually that. Uh, cut and dried as it was in terms of what I was being told as an American Jewish child. So that was sort of the first step. Um, And over the years, more and more, you know, I learned and, you know, a big shift for me. I mean, I I got into progressive politics as a teenager and I was active. I was active in the anti-apartheid movement, um, Central America. At that time, I was um, pretty active with ACT UP. and a whole bunch of a whole bunch of different issues and causes, um, but I was definitely still pro-Israel uh, through all that time. The f- I think a real break for me was the first Intifada, and I think that's probably true for a lot of Americans my age, um, because it was the first time that I would watch the news and hear the word Palestinian, and not immediately after that hear the word terrorist. It really was a shift. Palestinians were humanized in in mainstream culture at least a little bit for the first time in my lifetime. And um see, you know, the little boy with the with the holding the rock throwing, you know, against the tank, you know, that was a powerful image. And it was it was a powerful image on a number of levels and when it came back to me that, you know, the Israeli strategy was break their limbs, um, you know, that that sort of sounded to me like a lot of the things I was protesting here in the here in the US. Um, it still took a long time. I mean, I would say that um, the the next big break for me was the assassination of Yitzhak Rabin, um, which happened just as I was going at a relatively late age uh, in, into my undergraduate study. And I went after that and fortunately a mentor said uh, wanted me to do a special project. And the special project was to read the entire Oslo Accords and summarize it, both Oslo 1 and Oslo 2. And I did. And the first thing I wrote in my summary was, this cannot work. And the reason it couldn't work was that there was no attention paid to human rights. And this opened up a, a, a big world for me in terms of the politics around this issue. Um, I re- started realizing there was no universalism here at all, ever. There was never universalism. Everything was talked about in terms of what do Israelis want, what do Palestinians want. Um, and and the American discourse was to listen to the Israelis and to ignore the Palestinians. Um, there was absolutely no application of universal human rights of or universal values of any kind. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that really started me on my journey. It, a few years after that, I joined Jewish Voice for Peace. And at that time, JVP was a small organization that met in people's living rooms uh, at most a couple times a month in San Francisco and Berkeley. And um, a few years later, I was hired by them and, you know, have gone uh, gone ever since. I, I think I think, you know, 
for me, a lot of the 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 journey has been personal. A lot of the journey and a lot of the journey has been political. And it's been about actually, you know, finding ways to match my politics, which are, you know, both idealistic, but also I'd like to think pragmatic. So that was that was tug of war for me for many years. You know, how can how um, my focus was I want to resolve this conflict. I want to find ways to resolve this issue. I want to find ways to make to create justice justice here to create, you know, I, and for a while I thought about peace, but I moved past peace because, well, whatever it got, it got to be kind of a dirty word in this, uh, in this, in this realm, but, um, but justice and, and, and to me, justice is not about retribution and it's not, you know, I, I tend to shy away from the concept of it as accountability, rather it's about you know, creating a present and a future that allows everyone to live with the past, you know, and that that's does, beautiful. Yeah, yeah, that actually does entail to some extent, you know, some amount of retribution, I guess, or, or accountability, at least anyway. But um, it's, but but in this in, in, in given the politics around this, a lot of times I would go back and forth. And how do you you know, how do you fit that in with my ideals? And, you know, I, I think I'll always struggle with that to some degree. Um, but I think for me, what what crystallized was being an American ended up like sort of overriding everything else. So that was why for me, it was all about American policy uh, in this, not because America, American policy is should be or necessarily even is determinative, but because that's as an American, that's what I can affect. And I can bring a, I try to bring um, a consciousness of, uh, you know, really caring and, and holding in my heart, the value and lives of Israelis and Palestinians to Together. Um, and fortunately, there's enough Israelis and Palestinians who also share that perspective that I can yeah, I can sustain that. Um, and thank you for that offering also to highlight for us that justice doesn't necessarily mean accountability and retribution, because oftentimes what's lost, mm -hmm. actually, most of the time what's lost can't be brought back. Right. And that harm can't be repaired. Right. So how do we create um, a world that is just for now, the past and the future? Um, Mark, this is also deeply personal for you, right? Um, in ways that well precede your intervention at the UN during your address for the, in, in, in the Committee on the Inalienable Rights of the Palestinian People, right? I know that it was personal before then, but certainly then, um, in response to what is a beautiful 15-minute address for a just future, for you know, radical love that culminates in a that vision of you know freedom from the river to the sea that's then read as an uh, annihilatory message, and you are vilified in ways that no one deserves. And I think in that moment you you embody the exception, mm. right? You become the exception and 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 the living you know consequence of it. Um, you, you know, in addition to what people know in terms of how, you know, people shrieked, um, CNN shrieked the loudest um, in their response, but there's been a lot of other responses. So um, as I'm reading this, I'm also wondering how have you navigated the, you know, the, the cause for Palestinian freedom 
amongst progressive circles. And even though I know you started writing this before that incident, would you say that the book is an open letter to those <laughs> folks? You know, in, in some ways it, it is. You know, I, I what what I've what I've tried to do is not personalize too much or 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 rather not think too much about my personal experiences in this as I as I write and navigate this work, precisely for the reason that you said that the, the price that I paid for this issue on this issue is relatively you didn't say small, but I'll say relatively small uh, compared to what Palestinians have to go through every single day. The, the amount of discomfort I experienced at, at my institution is nothing compared to what Stephen Salaita had to experience or those who get locked out of the academy or Palestinian academics who can't who can't even travel or move freely to able to do the kind of academic work that we're talking about. So I, I, I think about my my experience to the extent that it's reflective of a principle we're talking about in the book. Um, but I always try to de- I try to and certainly not perfectly, but I try to decenter myself um, as, as I think about this stuff. Um, but it would be dishonest not to say that, yeah, as I'm talking about the exception, um, that my experience doesn't tie into that exception. You know, I mean, it, I have been an advocate for human rights since I was a teenager. I've been an activist since I was a teenager. I remember, you know, I was sort of post South Africa in terms of my focus, just because I was born into the different moment. But I remember, you know, protesting police brutality, fighting the free political prisoners. I remember speaking out against slavery in countries. You know, I remember, you know, reading about as a teenager, reading about what was happening in my late teens around, you know, Mauritania and Sudan and speaking out. I remember being outraged at, at, at all sorts of violence around around the globe. And there are people who agreed with some of it, disagree with others, but I never got the kind of pushback that I did on this issue. Um, I remember, you know, being in the academy, you know, as an untenured faculty member. I mean, I, I wrote a book with Mumia. <laughs> you know, it wasn't like I was playing it safe. Um, but there's a there was something different about the kind of tenor at, at, at various institutions. When I would talk to people, they say, you know, if you're going to do Palestine work, wait until after you're tenured. And there's a way that we've even internalized, that's become a kind of norm for us, even on the left in academic circles. It's like, okay, well, wait till you get tenure and then you can do it. And I get, I get why that's a safe play. I get why that makes sense to people. You know, keep your job and then do the work that matters for the rest of your life. I mean, that's a logic, but there's also a way that I'm telling my Palestinian friends, my Palestinian colleagues, my Palestinian allies, I can't stand next to you for six years. I can't speak out against injustice against you until until I, the board of trustees says I have this job, um, and that there's something about that that seems profoundly uh, unethical and, and 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 deeply unsettling to me. So by the time I get to the UN and I give my speech, I'm sort of I understand those logics, but I'm also a tenured faculty member. I'm also um, speaking as someone who has thought about engaged, studied deeply these issues. And I gave a speech that I thought um, was relatively um, mild as I was writing it. You know, I, I typically don't write down speeches. I kind of give, you know, I write them in my brain and deliver them kind of. Um, and I remember 
I was, I, I was, I, I jumped on a plane and as I was flying back, I said, you know, I'm going to write this one because I don't want anything controversial to happen. I don't want anything unexpected to happen. And you were flying back from Palestine. I was flying back from Palestine. I, I was in, um, I had been there for a couple of weeks and I had, um, the last place that I was, was in, was in, uh, Khan al-Ahmar. And so, and it was, bef- and, and there was still a demolition order in place. And I remember talking to them and I was with a group of art artists and activists and I was watching them do all nighters to, you know, protect and defend the area and talk about school and, you know, and hope and promise. And I remember being so energized when I left. Um, and, and, and I was excited to talk about these issues. Um, and I appealed to the Universal, Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which was also established in 1948, um, as, an, as a way of helping us um, think through, uh, actually, no, it was the 100th anniversary of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, um, to, to think through, as a way of thinking through um, the, um, as a way of, of appealing to what I thought was a common a shared understanding of, of, of what human beings should be entitled to, you know, I, I, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't read from, and not to say that I shouldn't have been able to, I didn't read from the Palestinian declaration of independence. Right. I didn't, I didn't, you know, I, I, I wasn't, I, I didn't get into the weeds of politics. I, I was essentially saying there's a set of experiences that we need to think about. Um, there's a set of politics, policy priorities that we need to think about. We need to imagine freedom and justice and even resistance in ways that are loving and humane, but rooted in justice. And I walked out of that speech feeling like um, I had done a solid job of articulating those values and those principles. Um, and 20 speech and certainly within 24 hours when I got the call from CNN, when I got the call from my university, when I got the call from the press, when I looked at Twitter, it was like two different realities from what I articulated and from what I was getting back. And to be honest, it was it was um, it was deeply unsettling. Um, it, you know, getting fired from a job isn't, you know, jobs come and go, corporate media jobs definitely go if you have a radical politics. So I wasn't, I was sad, I was disappointed, but it wasn't losing a job. It, it, it was, for me, the idea, and I know I'm going a little bit off to your question, but I just, it, it, it's part of how I think about and how I process this is I decided to pick up the pen and start working on this book again. Cause I, you know, for a minute I wanted to just leave it. And Mitchell texted me right afterwards and said, Hey, not right after he, he cared about me, <laughs> but a few of a month later, he's like, you know, if you don't want to finish this book, I totally get it. And I'm like, no, we have to for this reason. But I remember feeling pres- deeply hurt, um, at, you know, that the work that I was attempting to do and the call for justice that I was attempting to, to, to articulate was being read, uh, sometimes willfully misread, maybe sometimes, you know, People heard me differently than I intended. I have to. I, I can own a little bit of you know communication stuff here, but 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 regardless of why people ended up where they ended up, the idea that the takeaway from a, as you said a fifteen minute speech where I talked about what was happening in the West Bank, where I talked about what was happening in Gaza, where I talked about what was happening in Israel, where I talked about the right of return, where I talked about justice, all people heard were those six words or those eight words. Um, um, that was stunning to me. Um, but it also put me into, it gave me a new, it, it recalibrated my sensibilities around this issue. And I began to understand that it, because first I was like, all right, let me say one more thing. I, there's a moment of regret when you get fired from a job where you say, well, what would, what would have happened? And you start doing all these kind of counterfactuals. What would have happened if my flight had been late? What would have happened if, 
you know, um, if I hadn't said those six words, what would have happened if I had just stopped with free Palestine? What would have happened? And, and I'm not convinced that the outcome would have been different because part of what was at issue here wasn't whether I said from the river to the sea or whether I said free Palestine or whether, you know, I talked about any of these issues. For some people, it may have been, I, you know, I, I can't say that it wasn't. But I think a big part of it was the idea of me being there. The idea of a, of a radical politics of solidarity being there, the idea of a black intellectual taking time and space um, to call for justice, freedom and self-determination uh, for the Palestinian people. And, and not just the liberal kind of vocabulary of human rights, right, which which can become limiting in itself, but to actually call for justice, to call for self-determination, to do that itself was seen as an affront to a certain kind of political orthodoxy and cultural orthodoxy in the academy. And that is the thing um, that I didn't realize before. And so that's when I realized, felt like I was bumping up into the into the uh, bumping up against the 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 the, the I don't know uh, the, the limits the, the limits um and and those limits are um I, anyway those those limits are 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 very complicated and messy they're 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 I was thinking about the word hudud because they mean limits but they also mean borders right and and, and in some ways. It, and Mitchell and I were having this whole philosophical conversation about whether to call this book the borders of uh, for, for that very reason. Anyway, I don't want to get into a whole other thing, but but there's a very complicated conversation we could have about what these limits are, what it means for there to be limits, how malleable they are, how artificial they are, how constructed they are, but in many ways how very real they are. And so from this, no, I, I didn't we didn't complete the book. Um, I don't see it as a response to that or as a letter to that, but I recognize the connection between those things. Um, as we try to do a certain kind of transgressive border crossing. So, yeah, I think that that's right. I think that figuring out the messiness of it, what you all are trying to explore. Now, what you ultimately do in the book is you, you know, I think that the primary audience of this becomes um, almost a policy audience, right? It's not, it's not the crew in, um, you know, the Malcolm X grassroots project, or right? It's not the crew in the Free Mumia uh, or, or Free Leonard Peltier camp. There's a particular audience. And so, you know, I thought of this also, that that reflected a, pro, um, a productive tension between you two as authors. You know, I had the opportunity to interact with each of you during your writing process. And I recognized that in, in our conversations, I was like, wow, you know, you all are oriented to very distinct audiences. Professionally, you were trained in that way. You continue to, you know, academically, um, you continue to, to speak to different audiences. And yet here you were um, trying to bridge those words. And, and it, it is obvious. It was a productive tension. So you yes. can you can you tell us about that writing process and how that tension helped you develop uh, helped you develop uh, the book itself and its contents and its audience and the rest of it, right? However you want to answer that, but how does this tension between you all help you know lift up and take this make this come to fruition? <laughs> That's a challenging question. Um, I think. You know, I think for me, you know, I, I, I mean, I, I think there is that 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 tension is very real, right? And when Mark and I met, um, we were we actually we actually met in Palestine, um, and uh, he had gone on a 
uh, a trip that the Foundation for Middle East Peace had put together mm, for yeah. a bunch of journalists, uh, mostly black journalists, not entirely, but mostly black journalists. And um, we got, you know, we got to talking and and eventually, um, you know, this book ended up coming out of that. But at that point, you know, Mark was was working in media. Mark was working as, you know, as an academic and, and in the university. And I'm here working in very much in the policy world. And I'm, you know, I, I've gotten I at that point had really gotten used to I don't want to say compromising because actually um when I worked at FMEP, I was given a lot of freedom to to express my own point of view. But it was, you know, it was still geared towards Washington. Everything was 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 for a Washington audience. And it was, you know, we put things out publicly, we did things publicly, but it was all about, you know, how is this going to play in on Capitol Hill? How is it going to play in the think tank world? How is it going to, you know, how is it going to affect policy? Which is great. I mean, that's an important, I think, you know, frankly, I think on this issue, that's that's an area that's been neglected. And we need to focus more on that area. Um, But it's also, you know, it's also that also means that you have to temper everything that you're saying. You have to look at every word you have to and you have to do a little bit of give and take uh, in terms of what. So, you know, one thing that meant for me was constantly talking about a two state solution, which I don't necessarily oppose in the abstract in the sense of like if Israelis and Palestinians agree in an in, in, in some alternate universe where they can actually come to an agreement as equals um, and they that's what they decide. I'm, I'm good with that. You know, I, I my view has always been that it's the people who have to live with the solution that should somehow decide it and that, you know, we should be the international community should be trying to just create the the circumstances where one side cannot steamroll the other as Israel does on a daily basis. Um but okay, sorry, get a little bit off the track there. Um, but it does, you know, it does create a, you know, there's a way you have to write in Washington. There's a way you have to talk in Washington, and you know, so for me, then getting um, getting with Mark, it actually we spent, I think, most of the time that when we first met, I don't think we talked even, even though we were in Palestine, I don't think we actually talked about Israel and Palestine all that much apart from, you know, whatever we were doing that day. We ended up talking, as I recall, quite a bit about racial politics here in the U.S. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that was so striking to me when I got to know Mark's work, and I read Nobody, um, one of the other things I didn't mention in my personal history before is that I actually spent a year homeless when I was younger, uh, back in the eighties. And, um, I can never, that, that actually was a fascinating experience for me as a white man, because I can never be nobody in the sense, in the way a black man is in this society. Having said that, um, I did get a taste of being invisible when I was homeless, um, people did not see me. People did not acknowledge me. People looked away from me. Um, and learning that experience and, and, and that, you know, was a place that Mark and I would talked about, I think quite a bit when we were first getting to know each other. And for me, that was also a way into a, you know, into, to reconnecting my Israel Palestine politics w- with my more radical politics, which has always been at the core of my political identity. Um, so for me, that tension that you're talking about wasn't just between the two of us, but it then got reflected back internally 
and then back out. So it was this sort of symbiotic process. Yeah, which which I found quite generative, you know, um, as an ethnographer, as an, you know, as an anthropologist, you know, my 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 first my, where my brain goes and the kinds of questions I ask um, are just different. Um, not better, not worse, just different. And so, you know, I had already begun at by the time Mitchell and I, by the time Mitchell and I had started to write the book, not when we met, but by the time we started writing the book, I had already begun doing a formal research study on the Afro-Palestinian community. And so a lot of my questions were around racial identity and the racialization of the Afro-Palestinian, which after much thinking and reading and talking to you and others, you know, really developed into a, a, a I think a more sophisticated analysis of, of racialization processes within the state, which are less about racializing Afro-Palestinians and more about racializing Palestinians and, and then having other conversations around race and anti-blackness within the, the, the context of Israel and Palestine. Um, and so my brain was wired to sort of thinking about citizenship in terms of everyday ways of belonging, thinking about cultural practices and rituals. I'm thinking about how people understand themselves, how they inter- interact and thinking about different communities, although Jerusalem uh, was my primary focus, East Jerusalem um, and, and the uh, African quarter in particular. Um, and so when I think about things and I think about how to write, I'm thinking about in the context of rituals and practices and traditions and you know all of these things, and the policy world it was in the backdrop, um, and I understood them as important frameworks, but they but they they weren't where I begin. I begin sort of with the emic sort of understandings or, or, or the understandings of how people on the ground make sense of their own worlds, and so to to take a top down kind of policy approach instead was somewhat challenging for me, but it enriched the work that I do on the ground because I have a much deeper and richer understanding of, of, of how, of the kind of, again, the, the political uh, arrangements and pop, the institutional arrangements that get us to a place where we're talking about these things. Um, but they also forced me to, 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 to dig more deeply into history. Um, and so Mitchell and I would be de- talking about BDS or the right to exist chapter or the Trump chapter or the Gaza chapter. And, um, as we're talking through the ideas and I'm saying, we should, this is where I think we should go. And here's the big guy. Here's what I think the big idea of the chapter is. And he's like, yeah, that might be the big idea. Or it could be this other thing, which is sometimes a gentle way of telling me I'm wrong. And he, and he's actually was correct on that. Or he might be literally saying, okay, there's this other thing over here that looms large and we can't understand how we get to a place where, uh, where a progressive Senator is, is saying, you know, I want to protect, I want to protect companies and governments from boycotts, like, you know, like Cory Booker on the question of BDS. Right. How do you, a particular senator. Right. A particular senator from New Jersey, bald black guy. Right. How, how do we how do we get there? You know what I mean? Um, if we don't understand these other these other policies. And so that tension forced me to constantly dig back into history to understand more top down stuff, which which I think is not only enriched the book, but it's 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 enriched other things that I'm thinking about. It's forced me to think about how we got here in other ways. Well, thank you for engaging in that tension, grappling with it uh, fully so that it can produce this collaborative work. Um, 
We've got questions coming in from the audience that I want to address, and they actually fold well into, you know, a question I wanted to ask you about the current political landscape, right? So I'm going to divide these up into the, the, the audience is asking a lot about contemporary challenges, whether it be the adoption of the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance definition within the DOE's definition of, of anti-Semitic hate speech uh, to inform that. Or it's also about, you know, what Facebook is considering in terms of its new hate speech policy that will also collapse the definition of Zionism and anti-Semitism. So I want to divide this up into two questions. One is the, you know, the condition, the what, and the second part is the how to then confront it. So in regards to the condition, I think that we're, what we're bearing witness to in this particular moment is a very unique pairing, right? Oftentimes the better and more forceful uh, a community's resistances, right? The, the more hostile the opposition becomes in order to shut it down, right? There's usually this, this correlation between if the resistance becomes really effective, the backlash becomes incredibly violent or particularly so, right? <laughs> what we have right now in our current condition is not very much resistance from Palestinians for a host of reasons, not least of which is a global pandemic, right? And the criminalization and punishment that Palestinians have endured. Um, but not much resistance, right? Conditions on the ground that are frankly a bit unprecedented as we see Biden adopt and continue many of what, you know, people consider Trump's, you know, uh, contributions. But, you know, Trump put, put his foot on the accelerator, Right. And, but the DNC before Biden endorsed, for example, that the uh, U.S. embassy would remain in Jerusalem and not be moved back to Tel Aviv. It's the it's the DNC that took a position against BDS before we see Biden, you know, um, step up. And so you have you have the Abraham Accords. I mean, for me, these normalization agreements without a single enduring concession for Palestinians could not be more harmful and detrimental. Yet you have Thomas Friedman writing in the New York Times that, oh my God, this might be a moment of a new Middle East, right? So you have this, the height of really awful conditions without resistance and yet simultaneously incredibly violent backlash right now, right now as we see in anti-BDS legislation, as we see in the adoption of the IRA definition, as we see in this, you know, this push to collapse anti-Semitism, you know, anti-Zionist critique as, and, and to recognize it as anti-Semitic hate speech, that's all, that's an odd conundrum, right? So that's, that's the first part of this is like, what do you think is explaining this? Do you agree with that analysis? Do you see it differently? And then the second part of that question, and I can remind you, cause you might forget by the time we get to it is, People are asking how, or you can answer any one of them, right? How, how does one combat these, these conditions and circumstances? What should one do? How do you, you know, fight more effectively to bring Palestine into the realm of progressive politics? Yeah. Um, uh, I'll answer the second part first. And I want Mitchell to take, if you, it, I think Mitchell is, is very thoughtful about the first part. Um, <laughs> In other words, you don't want to answer that part. I get it. <laughs> and you just, you're, other than being a Nets fan, you're very, very thoughtful about, about things. <laughs> um, I, I, I think the how for me is, is a few things. Um, part of it is we have to make it, we have to literally make it a priority issue in terms of the electoral sphere. In terms of, you know, one of the things that is encouraging to me is that Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, however 
limited um, their their progressive politics were on the question of Palestine, they were far more advanced uh, than they had been even four years prior, and certainly more advanced than everyone else who was a mainstream um, rival for the Democratic nomination. You know, whether we're ready to call him Amal Bernie or not is a whole other conversation, right? But at the very least, it's a it was a it was a politics that acknowledged the humanity of, of of Palestinians and and thought that they were at least worth um, a kind of policy shift that would at least consider um, you know um, Palestinian human rights as a as a, as a legitimate concession for funding, right? Again. It's a drop in the bucket. It's the lowest of low bars. I'm not saying that that's where we want to be, but it was it was at least a signpost of what's possible. How does that become possible? It becomes possible when we make different political demands. Um, politicians don't have feelings. They have interests. And we have to find ways of leveraging whatever the issue is, our interests to shift, to converge with the politician's interests, thinking about CRT, as such that the politician will make a different move. Um, and so that means how we organize, how we vote. The fact that Rashida Tlaib, the fact that Ilhan Omar are in the Congress right now is a signpost, again, that it's possible, but that with the right support, Palestine doesn't have to be disposable and Palestinians don't have to be disposable. Again, doesn't mean that we have to agree with all of their politics on any particular issue, but it means that that's where we need um, to be. That's that's the sort of electoral sphere. I, I think, though, I think we need a framework, and this is partly my academic brain, but it's also, I think, how we move people on the ground, is we need to have a a politics of solidarity that doesn't hinge on sameness, but that does acknowledge common systems, frameworks, uh, et cetera, that put us in positions that that render us vulnerable. Um, When, you know, when we think about and, and you, Nora, uh, and I have talked about this, and, I, and, and you're the one who sort of gestured me to, in this direction. When we think about Ruth Wilson Gilmore's work um, and this idea of of being vulnerable or susceptible to premature death, and 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 letting that vulnerability or susceptibility be the kind of uh, a signpost of of racism, right? In other words, that racism as a system is 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 one that consigns people of a certain sort of a certain identity category that makes them more vulnerable to premature death. Well, now as a black person in America, I can, I can, I can say that being black makes me more likely to get COVID, makes me more likely to die of COVID. And again, I'm not making an ontological claim or biological claim that, b- that black people out of the womb are more likely to get COVID. What I'm saying, of course, is a set of social circumstances that connect, that, that are, that are, that, are um, that correlate to blackness are what make me more likely to die. That's why black people are dying more of this. We pay more for, for insurance. We, 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 even with the same, uh, you know, credit score, we, we, you know, we work harder for less money. We, we, we go to prison where we get arrested. Every, every index of social misery, we're at the top, every measure of social prosperity, we're at the bottom. And so in that sense, these, this is a way of seeing the relationship between my blackness in this context, in the United States context and, and, and my, in our, in our mis and our suffering and our misery. And so, if I think about the ways, again, that within the context of, of say, the Israeli state, just talk about Palestinians who live inside of um, inside of the state of Israel. And again, I, I don't I'm not saying that to separate Palestinians in the West Bank or Gaza or in exile, because one of the worst things I think we can do is separate those struggles. Or, or, or and, and again, one of the dangers of Oslo, which we get at a little bit in the book, but we could talk about more, is that it kind of rendered different people to be of different sorts. But I'm saying if I just looked at those conditions and I said, well, you know, to be Palestinian, 
in in the state of Israel um, means that I'm more less likely to get a high quality education, less likely to be able to access the neighborhood that I want to live in vis-a-vis admissions boards and, and things like this, right? That I'm that I'm less able to, and we go on down the list of things. What am I more susceptible to? Then we can begin to see commonalities in our struggle, not sameness, right? Not sameness, right? I'm not a stateless person as someone in in in, in Ramallah is, or some, you know, uh, I'm not living in a camp like someone in. Um, in you know in, in in wherever you know in Dehesha is, um, and you know and 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 similarly someone in Bethlehem is isn't is isn't three generations from slavery or well, actually very likely not right, um, are and they're not dealing with the same types of impacts of slavery as someone in the states. And so I'm not saying that we're the same, but I'm saying that part of how we can get this issue more in line in the states is if we understand that we're both engaged in an anti-racist struggle. And framing the struggle as an anti-racist struggle, as a, as a struggle where our, our where the, the identities that we embody are the thing that makes us more vulnerable to, to social misery. To understand that as a common struggle is a way to, 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 to attach as a framework. It does, so it's not this exotic, abstract idea that there's some Palestinians who are unfree and, and, and they're dealing with catching hell. And I don't exactly understand it. But having that link. Right. This is part of what made South Africa an interesting connection, an interesting link. Right. But it's not just tactical. Right. That's why I say it's not just about sameness because you could tactically say, oh, I, I, that's why I don't like when people say, oh, there's Afro-Palestinians, there's black people over there. They said, no, there's something more sophisticated. And here, the other thing is we can't dismantle these systems. We literally need each other. And part of the political education that comes from the work we're doing is that we need to we need to make it clear that in order to get free here in the United States, in order to get free in, in, in Palestine, that, that we have to understand that there are common systems and structures some of them are discursive, right? Some of them are material that that that, that shape our realities and that undermine our our, our our ability to be to get self-determination and justice and freedom. And 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 I'm not just saying this to be like kumbaya, but Israelis also can't get free fully until these things happen, right? Our Jewish brothers and sisters can't get free until everyone is free. Again, it's not just a leftist lefty cliche. We actually we are interdependent. We are bound up in, in each other's. And as what did Gwendolyn Brooks say? We are each other's harvest. We are each other's business. We are each other's magnitude and bond. That's for me. That is a a political analysis as well. And so for me, the way to make this just as sum that up, I know I did a lot of talking, is, is to say we need to do electoral work. We need to we need to we need to force politicians to do more, but we also need a conceptual framework and a political analysis that that demonstrates how we're connected, so that we're not just locked at the arm, as, as, but locked at the circumstance. Okay, so you know, I was really, um, I was I was actually really hooked onto um, your your mention of a violent backlash, Nora. Um, because that is what we are seeing happen here against, particularly against the BDS movement, but against sort of anti-Zionism in general. So the IHRA, uh, the IHRA definition and, and that whole fight, which sounds, you know, why you are, you know, initially a lot of people, I think, oh, you know, why are you arguing with the International Holocaust Remembrance Association about what anti-Semitism is? Well, I mean, there's a really good reason to argue against what, how they, how that definition has been adopted and used, uh, particularly since the author has ha, himself has said that it's been abused, um, and and was never meant to be used in the way it has. But you know, take a look at what happened in in the in the UK. Um, Jeremy Corbyn, who you know, I. I 
I have real criticisms of his ability as a leader and a politician, but on principles, you know, he basically reflects every progressive principle I believe in, and that's what he's fought for. And it is not a coincidence that in this era, when the effort to the effort around anti-Semitism has been incredibly focused on accusations of anti-Semitism among progressives and among the left and among, you know, has been weaponized and and completely torpedoed Jeremy Corbyn. There's no question about it. It was the you know, his Brexit stance was problematic, too, and, and was definitely a big reason why, you know, he was ousted. But, he, you know, the, the anti-Semitism accusations are still dogging labor to this day. Hmm. It's a big deal. And they're trying to do the same thing here. Um, that that attempt is very, very much underway. Um, I mean, I can't tell you in the past few weeks since the since we started really talking a lot on social media about the book, how many times I've seen IHRA in tweets to either myself and in credit and like a tidal wave of them directed at Mark. So um, that, you know, people are using it. It is conscious and it is a tactic. And we've seen the laws that are trying to criminalize BDS and are trying to say, you know, that, that BD, that to actually make BDS a crime, literally a crime. Yeah. To make boycotts a crime. This isn't just, and, and I think it's important to acknowledge that is not just a threat to Palestine solidarity. It is a threat to Palestine solidarity. It's rooted in anti Palestinianism, but that is an explosive tool that can be used against progressive movements of all kinds, of all kinds. I mean, if you are going to take away um, civil society's, you know, one of the few you know, tools civil society has to exert pressure on both states and large corporations and, you know, any, anything really big. I mean, you know, we should just, you know, forget, forget, stop talking about democracy entirely. Stop talking about freedom. Just forget it. Um, and, and that's that's actually, I think, what we're facing. And, in you know, so once again, I think and it's not unusual. Palestine is is the the battleground, the vanguard of of these bigger battles. And that is that's what we're seeing now. And I think it's also really notable on the other side of that, that. Um, you know, for many years we heard how, you know, well, we need Israel because of the Cold War. We need Israel because of the, you know, all the hostile Arab states, which are now, you know, all U.S. allies. Um, we need, you know, all these reasons. There's no longer any of that. The only the only real rationale that anyone ever talks about now about uh, in terms of, you know, quote unquote, pro-Israel, Hasbara, propaganda is the unbreakable bond, the special relationship that is um, that. And, and that means the only real defense is not an argument. It is the hurling of invectives. And it is therefore in, uh, the only real tool that people have now if they want to defend what has become an increasingly indefens indefensible policy um, of, of supporting Israel as it completely denies people their freedom and their rights and their hope. Um, the only thing you can do is call that, uh, that very assessment anti-Semitic. There really isn't anything left. In a sense, it's desperation, but it is a devastating weapon and it can have really, really horrible implications. Um, you know, one thing that every time we do these talks, somebody asks, you know, well, how do we how do we engage in this without being called anti-Semites? And my answer is you don't. 
You don't. And you have to be ready for for that. You're going to be called an anti-Semitic. It doesn't matter if you're Jewish. Okay, believe me, it doesn't matter if you're Jewish. Um, you're going to be called an anti-Semite because that's when that especially now, that's all they have. That really is. I mean, that and, you know, that and simple falsehoods, you know, the the um, the recent controversy over over Israel's refusal to vaccinate Palestinians in the occupied territories, which is, you know, clearly their responsibility under the Geneva Convention. And by the way, their excuse that the Oslo Accords frees them from that responsibility is false. It's not only false because the Oslo Accords can't supersede the Geneva Conventions, but the Oslo Accords actually don't say that. They actually say Israel is still responsible for this. That, okay, it actually commits Israel to work with the Palestinians to make sure that an epidemic is controlled. That That's actually in the Oslo Accords. So that, it, even if that invalid argument was not invalid, right, so the, it, would, it, would, it would still not work. So, um, the 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 dishonesty there is, I think, really important. And it's what you know, it's really what they have, because fundamentally, what are we saying here? You're defending the idea that a country has a right to hold millions of people without any rights for generations to 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 dispossess people and not ever let them see their homeland again for generation upon generation is that really what you're defending again we don't defend that in any other realm except for palestine right. so um you know when when people ask me you know how do i not get called an anti-semite you're going to get called an anti-semite because that's all they got that really is ultimately all they've got and it's effective so and and how do you counter it? Well, you counter it by making sure that you know you're acting on principle. You know, anti-Semitism as well as racism, misogyny, homophobia, transphobia, et cetera, et cetera. The whole list. We as progressives are against all of them. And if we are, you know, and if we if we are say that we are against all of them, we are working for justice writ large. That one of those issues is not more important than another. That's how you counter it. And that I believe, I think, for most of us, is the world we're trying to build. Hey, hey. I like this world. Um, <laughs> what concepts of actually eradicating all forms of isms and not forgetting one kind of coming full circle to where we started in the work of um, some radical Arab American feminists. Okay, y'all, we are at time, but I want to do something with you before we close, right? Um, and wrap up, which is I need you just on the top of your head. If you had right now, a little genie and a bottle and you can rub on that bottle and, and say the top three people you want to read your book right now. Obviously Mark wants Senator Cory Booker to read it. So that's his number one, <laughs> but like, who are your top three uh, to read it? So I, I leave it to y'all. Wow. But you got to go quick. This genie's going away. Oh, <laughs> wow. Um, I, I'm going to say Joe Biden. Okay. Who, who, who else you got, Mitchell? Um, I'm actually going with Elizabeth Warren. It would be would be one. Um, is this a collective three or, or three like? Shares? Oh no, three each. Oh, okay, okay. I'm going so I'm going to go Elizabeth Warren, Gregory Meeks, who's the the new chair of yeah. the uh, House Foreign Affairs Committee. He can use it. Yeah, I'm, um, going, I'm going Richie Torres for the same reason, along with. Yeah. Uh, 
Yeah. Along with Biden. Uh, and then lastly, um, ooh, it's it's a good question. I, I I'm I'm going. That's a good question. I I would want to give it to can I it, it it's an abstract right but but whoever the whoever the next young upstart uh, progressive politician is right but I want I want them to read this book so that as they navigate the space this doesn't become the exception for them mm-hmm. and my third is going to be Pope Francis actually all right. That's great. So now we have this wish list. May this book land in their hands and time for them to read it closely so that they can benefit from all of the work that you poured into it. Um, I encourage all of uh, the audience to get a copy of the book, to read it as well, to gift it, um, to also share it. I think this is um, a good one-on-one for folks who might not, you all write in, um, you all write in a very straightforward way. You do not have to have a background to be able to dive into it. And so this all also makes for a good entry point for that friend who says, I don't know anything. Where should I start? So this might be, might be the one. Um, so congratulations again, Mark and Mitchell. May you continue to spread the good word and, um, and may we build justice together. Yes, may you, please. Thank you so much, Nora. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.